Welcome, everybody, to a very special edition of KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Always excited to talk tennis with ESPN's Brad Gilbert and BG, our good friend, Johnny Levine, your former doubles partner from the Maccabea Games. I think you guys won a gold medal years ago. He's bringing a big tournament to Phoenix. It's going to be the Arizona Tennis Classic. And I think you and I both know, having been friends with Johnny for so long, that anything that he's going to take on of this magnitude is probably going to be done pretty well. Yeah, and he's got the perfect week, probably the best week for a challenger on tour between Indian Wells and Miami. And he'll want to make whatever's possible in the desert into a great event. And, you know, it's been a long time since they've had a tour event. And something tells me at some point Johnny might even work on that. But it's great to see that he's back in tennis. He's incredibly passionate and wants to bring a big-time event to the desert. Now, those of us that follow the sport closely, certainly yourself, you recognize every name on that player list. A lot of the fans that are going to be there may not. They don't realize that they're going to be seeing world-class talent, but they're going to be seeing some of the young Americans that uh, that can really bring it as well. Well, and there's a new format that started in January on challengers. They used to be 32 draw, and then a lot of times the qualies would be a 32 draw for four spots in the main draw. Now all challengers are a 48 draw, and the qualies are uh, four draw just to win one match to get in. It's played over seven days. And already most of the challengers this year that started this new system in January, I've been looking at them. The cutoffs are between 300 and down to some as even low as 500. And Johnny's challenger here, I see the initial first cutoff is about, 135, two alternates look like they're in. Casper Ruud, who's a really good, young, up-and-coming player, and a veteran, Lucas Lacko. So you got a mix of older players, younger players, and this tournament is, I believe, one of the only challengers where they're allowed to make an exception for higher-ranked guys than challengers allow, you know, to possibly play if they lose early in Indian Wells. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but you can enter Indian Wells and the Arizona Tennis Classic, and if you do well at Indian Wells and you break through and you make it into the second week, you can pull out no harm, no foul, and Johnny's got safeguards against losing players in the draw through that system? Yeah, so if you're in the tournament on Sunday at Indian Wells, so you have to be moving into the third round, that's when they probably make the draw Sunday night, so whatever, 5 or 6 o'clock is the cutoff. And if you've entered both, you're still in Indian Wells in either singles or doubles. They pull you out, and then the next person that was on the list goes in. And then Johnny's allowed five wild cards. So, you know, a lot of people that didn't enter, maybe they're even ranked higher, and all of a sudden they happen to lose early in Indian Wells. So there's no tournament between them other than this challenger that you want to ask. And then some people, like if you're in the top 25, you can't even enter a challenger. But in this circumstance, if you lose early in Indian Wells, you can ask for a wild card into the challenger. You're going to see Jared Donaldson, who's gone good the last couple of years. You're going to see Ryan Harrison, who's got a a French Open doubles championship to his name. Uh, You're going to see other American players, Bradley Klon, who played at Stanford. So you're going to get to see some great young American talent. I think he's got five guaranteed Americans in the main draw. Yeah, Michael Moe, who's a good young American. He's 21 years old. 
and, and you never know, you know, if a couple guys lose in Indian Wells, you never root for people to lose. Maybe things, you know, could flow in the right direction. But you got guys like Ruvalev, Struff. The, the field is loaded. I've seen, listen, I've seen some 250 events that don't even have this good of a field. Go to ArizonaTennisClassic.com for more information on the tournament that Brad and I are talking about. My guest today on KickServeRadio.com, the one and only Brad Gilbert from ESPN. I wish I had a KickServe. I never had a good KickServe. <laughs> you made the most out of what you had, BG. We all know that. And the book speaks for itself, and, and you lived it. Let's talk about Indian Wells a little bit, Brad, because I think if somebody would have told you or myself, when I was sitting in that stadium one year ago, watching Novak Djokovic go out with a whimper, losing 6-1 in the third set to Taro Daniel, who incidentally is in the draw at, at Phoenix. Would you have ever in a million years thought that one year later we would be talking about Djokovic three legs into another Joker slam? Negative. I mean, I mean, probably at Indian Wells in Miami was maybe the lowest I'd seen him. But obviously for about six months to 12 months, he'd been battling this elbow issue, and then after uh, Australian Open last year, he decided to get surgery. And then amazingly, you know, tried to play like six weeks later. Uh, so he wasn't quite ready, obviously, physically, you know, because he hadn't been able to practice. But by the end of the clay court season, he was starting to get, get it together. And the match that he won in the semis of Wimbledon, I think that was like the massive turning point for him. And that he beat Rafa when Rafa was playing. I thought at the highest level, and I think that changed everything for him. Next thing you know, he wins Wimbledon. It's incredible what he's done, and he's playing as well as he is now in 15 when he was doing this. It's not better. I thought going into that final, that's a, that's a pick and match the way Rafa was going. I mean, those two guys between them, Brad, lost 10 games total in the semis. We thought this was going to be Frazier Ali, and it was incredibly, surprisingly one-sided. Well, you know who pushed Joker the most was Medvedev in the round of 16. Right. And he, he had him on the ropes a bit, and then Joker ended up turning up the screws, and then he ran completely ran out of gas. And then after that match, then he you know, was all over you know, Kay, who was just not, not ready to go from the first ball. His body was gone from that epic 7-6 in the fifth. He played the round before and then just smoked Pui, and then just from the first point, Rafa had won 18 sets on the trot going in that match, but I do think that that match that he won at Wimbledon was one of those matches that maybe is going to turn the tide in his favor big time again in their rivalry. From the first ball, you just felt like, uh-oh. Sitting courtside, I had this belief that nobody, upon nobody that's ever played the game, is going to be Joker when he's at that level. Certainly not the way he's going now. Brad, I think something that tennis fans would love to have your opinion on is a story that just broke recently. Naomi Osaka, our new number one in women's tennis, splits with her coach, Sasha Bain, and he took her from 72 in the world to number one in the world, and a lot of people made all kinds of different speculative arguments as to what may have caused this split. Naomi comes out and in very honest fashion just says, uh, you know, I want to be around people that I like, and clearly their relationship had come to a place where she wasn't feeling that from him. Do you begrudge her that decision, or do you maybe applaud the honesty and just think that, well, you know, she's not always the greatest in front of a microphone anyway. Maybe she could have handled it a little bit more tactfully, but where do you stand on, on that split? Well, we've seen in the women's, uh, Darren decided to step away from Halep, 
you know, at the end of the year. You've seen Sloane Stevens move on from her coach. You've seen Kerber move on from her coach. These are all people that won a slam, you know, recently. And then the Osaka one is a bit of a shocker. I mean, it's the first coaching job that really Sasha's had because he was the hitting partner for Williams, Azarenka, Wozniacki. And, and then he does an absolutely amazing, insane job where you take a girl in 12 months from 72 to 1 and 2 slams. But unlike a team sport, if there's some sort of a disagreement between player and coach, you know, you got GM or you got owners that say, listen, get the shucks together right now, or maybe I'll run both of you out of here. But in tennis, a lot of times your boss is someone a lot younger, and if they're not feeling it, they're the one that signs the check. But you hope in her sake that she can rise above this and, you know, continue this journey of playing great. If all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years from now, she's not playing the same level, you always wonder why. Now you just have to see how it plays out. Have you seen a, a, an evolution in the player-coaching relationship? You know, when you were with Andre or Andy Roddick or Andy Murray or, you know, whoever you were with, it just seemed like you guys were held in very high regard with respect to the results of the players being largely attributable to the work that you guys were doing. But you don't necessarily see that in the player-coach relationship in this day and age. Is that because the coaching teams are so much more spread out and now it's more about physios and nutritionists? Yeah, yeah, well, for sure, you know, when I was coaching Andre for eight years, you know, it was a small team. So it's different, and listen, I I just know her a little bit from interviewing a little bit. I don't know her away from tennis, so even from afar, if it looks like a crazy decision, but she's still the one that if she's not feeling right about it, it, you know, you don't want to make or continue something that you're not happy with, And, and something tells me he'll get a gig right away. I would be shocked if he doesn't get a gig right away, and then in the next couple of months, He's coaching somebody and playing against her in a big match. Brad, one of the things I've always loved about having you do what you do uh, professionally is that even though you specialize in tennis, and I've said this to you before on air, you are a sportscaster and you love to talk sports. And i got to ask you, because I know you're a big Warriors guy out there in the Bay Area, your boy Kevin Durant wins the MVP, and he's feeling a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit jilted. He's not feeling the love from the media. Feels like he should he should be regarded as the best player in the world, and he feels like LeBron gets that. Where do you stand on, on sort of KD versus LeBron as a player and as an ambassador for the sport? Focus on, on controlling the controllables and don't worry about what people are going to say. It's like, oh, my God, Fed fans are panicked that, that the Joker could be considered at some point the greatest player. or He can't be considered the greatest unless he passes my slams and, or the Rafa fans. It's like, you know what? Keep winning. <laughs> like, win this year, and then hopefully somehow the Warriors can re-sign him. Or if he wants to start his own team, maybe wants to – have the identity of starting a team. and But I, if I was him, focus on winning now. And But, you know, it's the same. Maybe at the end of the year, it's like Osaka. It's like, listen, I want this for my happiness. So it's hard to comment without knowing the individual. But he's in an amazing situation, you know, playing with, with other superstars on his team that don't have massive egos. He's one of the best in the business. He is the great Brad Gilbert. And, Brad, we look forward to seeing you in the desert. And we all, as tennis fans, love your work. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I think that this is going to be 
a tremendous event for people to kind of come out. And, and all of a sudden, it's like you look at your draw, you circle people. And the great thing about a challenger is I, I've, I've had people tell me that, like, they saw Andy Murray play in Santa Cruz, like, in 2005. And then all of a sudden, oh, the, they, and then they saw him win in San Jose his first title. So it's like you can kind of put people down or look at this guy and say, okay, well, I wonder where he's going to be in six months to a year. That's the fun thing about going to challengers and seeing if you can spot like somebody that maybe potentially could be top 10. You feel like you discovered the guy yourself. And as you and I both know, if Johnny Levine's got anything to do with it, it's going to be a classy, swanky deal. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Brad, thanks so much. I appreciate you joining me on kickserveradio.com. Take care, buddy. Work on that kickserve. <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Brad.